to chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Revelation, uh, starting in verse 14, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 1658 and 1659. 1658, continuing on to 1659. going to be Revelation chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 14 to 22, 14 through 22. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing. I do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, beloved people of God, we now come to the last of the seven letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, southwestern Turkey today. Today, the church in Laodicea, in which we see that Christ loathes despises, we could say, the lukewarm, proud church. Jesus loathes, despises, the lukewarm, proud church. Already in this series, we've seen the letter to Ephesus, where the church there had not only lost, but left its first love. Smyrna, where the church was faithful in the midst of persecution. Pergamum, the church that was lax in discipline, refusing to exercise discipline. Thyatira, that had mystic tendencies, not relying totally upon the word of God as the only infallible rule of faith and life. Sardis, the church was about to die. And Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, the 
faithful missionary church. And so now we come to this, the church in Laodicea. By the way, we want to note that sometimes people have said, well, these seven churches, this is like significant of different eras, different epochs of church history. I don't think that's true. But I would say this, that each, uh, that every congregation or every church or every branch of the church, like I said before, this could be more than one congregation when it says the church in a certain place. It could be what we would call a presbytery. But every congregation, every church, may exhibit one or more of these characteristics. So part of the challenge for us then is to look at ourselves and to see how are we doing, you say. Are we going to hear the well done, good and faithful servants, you say, or are we going to fail in terms of what we are supposed to do? Now as we look at Laodicea in terms of the setting, we see that it was re-founded, so it had been founded earlier, but it was re-founded by a man by the name of Antiochus II in 261 to 246 B.C., so 3rd century B.C., the 200s before Christ. The city was a knot on the road system, or we could say like a crossroads. The great eastern highway and the central route of the Roman Empire ran right through it. The, route, the road from Pergamum and the Hermas Valley to Pisidia and Pamphylia passed through its gates, and a road from eastern Caria, and at least one from central and west Phrygia met here. So think about Atlanta for a minute. All roads uh, lead to, to Atlanta, or so it seems. Of course, today it's the air travel, you know, the old joke that if you die and go to heaven, you have to fly through Atlanta first. <laughs> um, but in any case, in any case, uh, here in the southeast, Atlanta, uh, historically, of course, was on uh, crossroads, uh, it was all the rail lines. Terminus was the original name, terminal point for the city of Atlanta. And, of course, now in more in the 20th, now the 21st century, you know how many highways there are. We know the downtown connector and all the places that you can get to through the interstates. Well, that's sort of what we have here with Laodicea. The city's walls encompassed an area about a square mile, about a square mile. The four corners, interestingly, pointed to the compass points, north, south, east, and west. Mountains are on the north of Laodicea, including the snow-capped Cadmus, C-A-D-M-U-S, Cadmus. Uh, it, it gave the appearance of a city lowered from the mountains and caught in a pocket of rivers um, with, with splendid hot springs. Uh, by that town, there are also 100-foot precipices, drops, where the water cascades down. Waterfalls, which have and in the past become an immense frozen cascade. And the spectacular sight of what appeared a perfectly white waterfalls would have been easily seen from the city of Laodicea. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? As you think about that. The area was well known for its hot springs. So here we've got both cold water and hot. Ah, maybe that's going to give us a clue. 
in terms of what Jesus is saying here. Now, in terms of the com of commerce and the arts, it was very popular, very wealthy. It had a lot of wealth. Because of its being at a crossroads, the peace of Rome, the fact that Rome had established peace by means of its military conquest, so everything was pretty much under control. The peace of Rome, or the Pax Romana, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, you see, uh, was able to bring a lot of wealth to the city. It became a banking center, and it was so rich and proud that it refused it refused government assistance to help it recover from earthquakes. No, 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 we don't need your help. We don't need your government <clears throat> assistance. We've got this. We are self-sufficient. A quality, a characteristic that is going to, going to characterize the church in Laodicea as well. It was a manufacturing center. This valley was known for its sheep with their fine fleeces of glossy, glossy, you know, a lot of uh, shiny raven black wool. So usually we think of sheep in terms of their white wool, but these sheep had raven black wool, very glossy. There were manufacturing plants for garments, clothing made of this wool, plus the making and dyeing of dainty clothes. And more than that, it was a pleasure resort. The arena of its stadium took 12 years to build. Now, that's longer than it took to build the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. took 12 years to build, and that arena was 900 feet long, 300 yards long. There were two or three theaters in the city. A gymnasium. And we need to realize today we talk about a gym or gymnasium. What do we think about? We think about basketball hoops and that sort of thing. In other words, simply for, for the body. But a gymnasium in ancient times was not only for the body but also for the mind, sort of like an academy. There was also what is called an odium, O-D-E-U-M, an odium or, again, a a theater, a musical theater, where musicians could play and hear the masterpieces of their day. So you've got theaters for plays, like Greek plays, but you also have a place where you would have very good acoustics in terms of music, in terms of music. It also, by the way, is being a pleasure resort, a place of entertainment and sport, but it also, as a pleasure resort, think about other resorts like Hot Springs, Arkansas, or Warm Springs, Virginia, or Warm Springs, Georgia, for that matter. Right? Warm Springs, Georgia. It had a remarkable water system. Pure lake waters that were medicinal, had a healing touch to them. They were conveyed to an aqueduct and practically the same level of the city, which meant that the pressure on the pipes would be eased. So, in other words, it was, it was fairly easy to get those waters into the home. We, you know, we think, oh, running water, this is just a, a modern invention. Well, actually, they had running water thousands of years ago. Okay, and so this is what you have here. And it was a medical center. Both the cool and those medicinal waters and the hot springs in the area 
would, would lend themselves to being a place where doctors, where physicians would do their work. The school of medicine in Laodicea had developed a very effective eye salve. So you know, sometimes you, you may have red eyes or whatever, you say, well, let me put some let me put some salve on here, some ointment, some treatment to help me with the eyes. Well, again, 2,000 years ago and more, here you have a very effective eye salve ointment for the eyes uh, in order to, uh, to heal them, developed by the School of Medicine that was here in Laodicea. In terms of its religion, why there were plenty of temples. And interestingly, religion was bound up with the idea of healing. We've seen this theme before. Now, in terms of its church, we, we don't know a whole lot about the church. Um, in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2, Colossians uh, chapter uh, 2 and verse 1, Paul writes, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you, and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So when he wrote to the church at Colossae, he also mentioned the church in Laodicea, which means, of course, when he says they haven't seen my face, means, of course, that he had not founded that church. Uh, we also find this mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 13, for I bear, bear him witness that... Um, uh, that he, that is Epaphras, that he has a great zeal for you in Colossae, but also those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. And also verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus in the church that is in his house. And um, uh, So here we see then the whole idea of, um, uh, and also verse 16, Notice when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. What does that imply? It implies that one of the letters, one of the letters that Paul wrote is missing. What does it mean that somehow the Bible is deficient? No, it just means that that is one of those writings that God did not want in the Bible. But it's interesting, isn't it? He wrote to the church at Laodicea, as well as wrote to the church at Colossae. Well, as we introduce this text here, we see it starts, as all the letters do, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? And then we have Christ's self-description. Notice what he says here. These things says the amen. Now, usually, you know, and children, you know, that when do we say amen? We say the amen at the end of a prayer, most familiarly, most usually. What does it mean? What does it mean? Does it mean Roger Wilco over and out? No, no, no. It means so let it be, or truly, truly, so let it be. When we say amen, we are affirming what has just been prayed. And so when he says he is the amen, uh, he is the one who embodies truth. He is the one who, of, of whom all things consist. And so he, he says he himself, Jesus, is the amen. amen. He is also the faithful witness and true. Christ is absolutely true, faithful, and trustworthy. Mm -hmm. and you know, this is in contrast 
to the insincerity and the hypocrisy which Christ found has found among the Laodiceans. In contrast to their lack of faithfulness and to their, their, their falseness, if you will, no, he says, no, I am the faithful and true witness. He also identifies himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, heretics, such as those who are Jehovah's Witnesses, heretics have taken this to mean that Christ is a created being. That's not what this means. Rather, it means that Christ is the origin of creation. He's the beginning of the creation of God. And to refer to Colossians once again, this is what we find in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, where Paul writes, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. So not just physical, but also angels, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Amen. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. Amen. And so we find there in Colossians, but we also find similar, similar expressions in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 6, where John says, He, Jesus, said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And again, chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 13, where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And of course, you remember John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's what's being indicated here. When he says, I am the beginning of the creation of God, he's not saying he's the first one that was created. No. It's saying that he is the origin. He is the, the one who originates creation. He is the one who brings creation to be. Now the significance for this church is, first of all, that Jesus is the source. Jesus is the source by which hypocrites must be saved. He's the source by which hypocrites must be saved. The other thing that we see here that's very interesting, because when Jesus says he's the beginning of the creation of God. Of course, this also implies, does it not, not just the creation that we see around us, but it also implies the new creation. And in, in point of fact, the new creation that is found in Jesus is what is what needed, is, is needed. The hypocrite must be born again. He must have a new heart. He must have a heart put within him by the Lord Jesus pouring out his spirit upon that person. And so here he identifies as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now if that is an introduction, let's look at the warning here today, verses 15 through 18. Jesus talks about the lukewarmness, the lukewarmness 
of the Laodiceans. He begins by saying, by talking about his knowledge. I know your works. And children, we've talked about this before, but I'll say it again. It's one thing for people to know about you when you've done something great. Oh, I, I know you did a you did a fine job on that on that homework assignment, or I know that you took out the trash like you were supposed to, and then you pat yourself on the back, and that's wonderful, right? But it's horrible when your mom, your dad says to you, I know what you've been doing, and it's not any good. And so here, my friends, we're not dealing with a mortal, with a, with a human, a mere human. We're dealing with the God-man. And here, when Jesus says, I know your works, this is a terror, or should be a terror to them. It should be terrible. It should terrorize them. For Christ here has nothing good to say about them. Do you notice that? He has nothing really good to say about them. So I know your works, and what does he say specifically in terms of that? That you are neither cold nor hot. That you are neither cold nor hot. Well, so, let's think a moment. When we think about, we think about water, think about a drink. Oh, it's great to have a nice cold drink of water on a hot summer day. You've been out working, perhaps, or you've been out, you've been out playing, you've been uh, shooting the basketball, or whatever it may happen to be, and, and you're all sweaty. Oh, just for a cold drink of water, or Coca-Cola, or whatever, right? You like that cold drink. It's cool, it's refreshing, it's delicious. Or what about on a, on a winter day, and you've You've been outside in the cold. You come in, what do you want? You want a hot cup of coffee or, or hot chocolate or tea or whatever it may be, which, of course, can be pleasing to the taste and can also help you recuperate, right? But Jesus says, you're neither cold nor hot. And he goes on to say, in terms of his desire, Christ's desire, I would that you were either cold or hot. Now, there are two possibilities here as we look at this, as we interpret this. It is that cold and hot are opposites intended to indicate totally different spiritual conditions. This is the way a lot of people have interpreted this. Cold, like if you're, it's like you're cold to God, you know, people totally untouched by grace. If you're hot, well, you're truly a Christian, you're turned on, you're on fire for Christ. But on the other hand, let me suggest that that's not what is being intended here. Rather, there's no special symbolic significance to either hot or cold. Instead, the contrast is with regard to being lukewarm. The contrast is with regard to being lukewarm. And indeed, that's what we see here, that hypocrites are an abomination to God. They are nauseating to the Lord. And that's why we, lead, we, we now see Christ's threatened action. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, you all know what a lukewarm drink tastes like. You want it hot or you want it cold? You want coffee hot or you want an ice cold coffee? 
You all know what a lukewarm drink tastes like. Jesus basically is saying, you make me sick. Mm. You make me sick. Mm. Lukewarm. You are lacking life in your profession of faith. You are unenthusiastic with regard to Christ. And that's why Christ entrance. I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. Or in the, the words of the King James, so I will vomit you out of my mouth. I'm going to spit you out. Because you are neither whole, you're lukewarm. Now, we should be able, just from the text itself, to be able to draw that conclusion. But as I mentioned a moment ago, as I mentioned a moment ago, what did you find? What did you find in Laodicea? You found hot springs, and you also found cool, refreshing water. Both of them were wonderful in their own right, but here, when you are lukewarm, you are not desirable at all. So, that's the lukewarmness of which Christ has knowledge. But notice the pride then. This warning comes in the midst of pride. Notice the situation. The Laodiceans' self-esteem, self-importance. Because you say, you profess it to yourselves, you profess it to others, because you say, I am rich and have wealth and have need of nothing. Remember, Laodicea was a very rich, self-sufficient city. It even refused government assistance to help with that disaster of the earthquakes. And the Christians were cut out of the same cloth. Perhaps they were thinking that material wealth implies spiritual riches. Well, God has blessed us with all these good things, it must be that we're really in a right relationship with God. But you know what's interesting is that many times material wealth actually indicates spiritual poverty because you become self-sufficient. You become self-sufficient. My father started a church that I was privileged to minister in eventually in Westchester County, New York, the richest county, historically at least, in the country, just above New York City. One of the realtors <coughs> told us when we first moved to Somers, New York, Westchester County, that, you know, it was all about, everyone had alcohol and drugs. You know? And, and in other words, they... They, and they had all the wealth that they needed, right? A alcohol and affluence, wealth. That's what they had. They had alcohol and affluence. Therefore, they didn't need anything. I mean, that's the way they thought. Very hard to minister to people like that, as you can imagine. Go to the suburbs of Atlanta. This is a similar attitude. There are many needs here in the city. There are many needs in the <coughs> suburbs. One of the hard things of ministry in the suburbs is that people don't know how needy they are. And that's exactly what we find here. Why? We have all this wealth. We're, we're in the, the middle of this, uh, of this economic boom and so forth. We must be okay. But this was their big difficulty. 
was not being willing to admit their spiritually impoverished, destitute condition. And that even if they had great wealth, it didn't mean that they were right with God. So notice the terms here. They said, he says, you don't know your condition because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have nothing, but you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched, that is to say, in a horrible condition. Oh, as, as Paul says in Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am. And instead of thinking that their wretchedness is because of their sin, they sniffed with an air of pride. Who, us? Wretched? Why? We have need of nothing. Miserable or pitiable. They were in a lost condition, yet they were totally unaware of that. Poor. Remember the parable that Jesus told in Luke 16, in which the, uh, uh, the rich man uh, thought that he had a need of nothing? His material wealth, perhaps even an interest in some measure in spiritual things, had lulled him to sleep. But what happens? He ends up in torments, in hell, and Lazarus, that poor beggar, ends up in heaven. These people in Laodicea, likewise, did not understand their poverty and the danger they were in. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind. Remember what? Um, remember uh, Jesus in uh, Luke? Uh, excuse me, in John, in John chapter nine, he healed the blind man. And at the end of that chapter, Jesus said, "For judgment, I have come into this world that those who do not see may see." and that those who see may be made blind. And so the Pharisees, the goody-two-shoes, who were with them, heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin And so they were blind, these Laodiceans, but also, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, also did not realize that they were blind. And as long as their ignorance remained, as long as they couldn't see, there was no hope for them. By the way, this is true in the church. It is certainly true in our society. The total idiocy, the total stupidity of most of our political leaders is astounding, is it not? They don't see. They're totally blind to reality. But here's the thing. That blindness or that type of blindness can afflict the church, which is precisely what Jesus is saying with regard to the church in Laodicea. And so they're blind. They're wretched, they're miserable, they're poor, they're blind, they are naked. They are naked. You know, there's an amusing, there's an amusing uh, story in Acts chapter 19. Remember this? In Acts chapter uh, 19, when uh, uh, there were some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you. We cast you out by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. 
Also, there were seven sons of Siva, Jewish chief priests, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Wow. See, what's interesting is, even Satan spit out those seven sons of Siva and caused them to flee naked. These Laodiceans thus were in a totally poor, may have been clothed with garments of the finest fashion, that black, that glossy black wool, that, or the, the more dainty clothing with the fancy dyes. But spiritually, they were naked. And so we come then, having seen the situation, we come now to the solution where Jesus says, I counsel you. That's interesting. He doesn't say, I command you. I order you. He says, I counsel you. He gently advises them. This is the only way by which these hypocrites could be brought in. He doesn't come. He's not, he's not coming with a, here so much with a frowning face. It's a concerned face. I counsel you. What does he counsel to buy from me? To buy from me. This doesn't imply work salvation. Rather, it is pure grace that is in view. Of course, there's an irony, is there not, to the Lord telling poor people to buy these precious things. But that's exactly what Isaiah tells us. In Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Yes, but come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. It's not that you can offer God anything. You can't offer God your good works. You can't pay them with whatever little shekels, whatever little money you have. What Christ is saying here is come and learn from me. Come, buy from me. But in the coming, recognize you don't have anything to offer. But this is what you need, and I'm going to, as you come and partake of this, I'm going to give it to you for free. And so buy from me without money and without price. Furthermore, to buy from me, what are they to buy? They are to buy gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. Gold refined by fire, very precious, very pure, so that they may be rich. Of course, we're not talking about literal gold. We're talking about spiritual gold, so that they may be rich towards God. And he goes on to say, and white garments. White indicating purity and righteousness. What is the purpose to clothe yourselves, and so the shame of your nakedness not be revealed? And so be clothed <coughs> by that you may be rich and white garments, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Wherein consists that righteousness? It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Today is Reformation Sunday, 504 years ago today. Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses, 95 statements to the, to the door at Wittenberg, Germany. And... Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the essence of the Reformation? The essence of the Reformation is that we are justified by God, not 
by anything that we can do, not by any works which we can do, but totally and completely by the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ. And that work, including his death upon the cross and also his keeping the law that we could not keep, his fulfilling of the law, that is imputed or put to our account. It's imputed to us and received alone. So that we are naked, but he says, take upon me the white garments. Be clothed with my salvation, with my righteousness, because you have no righteousness of your own. You're naked. And so this is what the Reformation is all about. This is why we are Christians, why we're Protestants, rather than, for example, Roman Catholic. This is what Jesus is saying. This is the gospel. This is the pure gospel. Buy from me white garments. Trust in me and what I have done. And furthermore... I salve to anoint your eyes. I salve. Anointment. The word here is collyrium, which is an eye-opening ointment and powder. And by the way, interestingly, it can cause smarting at first. You know, you put, a, you put medicine and you say, oh, I want to feel great immediately. But what has to happen sometimes? You put iodine in, you know, on, a, on a something, on a wound, it's going to smart a bit first, isn't it? Hydrogen peroxide, whatever it may be. Here, even the eye salve, it would cause a reaction, cause smarting at first. But that's the only way you can be healed. That's the only way you can have sight. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. That you may see the holy God as he is and that you may also see the human heart as it is. Now, by way of application today, I have two points. The first is this, beware of hypocrisy. Beware of hypocrisy. As we read from Matthew 7 today, Jesus warned people, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, is on his way to heaven. Matthew 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, cast out demons in thy name, and done many wonders in thy name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The danger of hypocrisy, my friends, is real. And you know, it's, it, the, of course, hypocrisy is not so much with regard to the world. The danger of hypocrisy is for those who are in the church. Because they're hypocrites. They don't live up to their profession. Of course, we see very little genuine piety today, or godliness. And very little understanding of sin, and misery, and guilt, and redemption. They, as, as scripture would say, they heal, they heal the wound of the daughter of Jerusalem slightly. What does that mean? It means that a lot of preachers will soft soak things. They will not tell you the truth. My friend, these are important 
critical things, serious things. Young people, don't go away this day without examining yourself and seeing if you're in the faith. Don't older people go away without examining yourself and making sure that you're in the, in the faith. Beware of hypocrisy. And then secondly, what tests can be used as a spiritual thermometer? Well, enthusiasm in the Lord's work. Are you enthusiastic about the Lord and his kingdom? What about glad attendance at church services? Notice they didn't say attendance. They said glad, happy, joyful attendance. Are you glad to be here? If you're not, there's a spiritual problem. Tithing. Giving as the Lord has commanded and doing so joyfully and deliberately. Witnessing, testifying to what Christ has done for you. And furthermore, anticipation of future glory. Because after all, the Lord here is the one who will come back. Because he is the one who is the Amen. And the faithful and true witness. And he is coming and surely, surely, is coming. Are we anticipating that? Or are we just living for the moment and living like the world? My friends, Jesus despises. He loathes. He vomits out. He vomits. He spits out the lukewarm proud church. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And Father, we pray that this message would be applied to our hearts through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be pleased to send revival and reformation in our day. The glory and honor of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.